0: I'm Aaron Ross Powell, and this is Reimagining Liberty. I've long argued that it's important for everyone engaged in political debate to understand the ideas, theories, and philosophies they're arguing with. That understanding begins with taking them on their own terms, trying to understand them the way those who hold them do. You shouldn't just read what your side says about the other guys, but instead look at how the other guys talk about their own ideas— critically engaging with and making a real effort to understand perspectives that aren't our own is often fascinating, and even if you ultimately reject their conclusions, you can still learn a lot. That's why, when I was first kicking around ideas for Reimagining Liberty, I knew I wanted to do an informal series on perspectives and philosophies outside of what traditionally falls within radical liberalism. Today I'm pleased to kick that off with my friend Ian Bennett, host of the excellent Epoch Philosophy YouTube channel topic is Marxism. Ian's a Marxist. I'm not. But as I said, there's value in having a clear understanding of Marxism, of what Marxists actually believe and what Marx actually said, instead of what libertarian or conservative critics say they believe or say he said. My conversation with Ian is a perfect introduction to Marxism for non-Marxists. We talk about what Marxists mean by capitalism. Spoiler, it's not simply a synonym for free markets. We talk about alienation, about revolution, about how Marxists view socialism as a kind of radical democracy. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation as much as I did, and learn as much from it as I did. And as always, stick around to the end for a preview of our next episode, as well as information on how you can listen to it right now without any weight. I think maybe the best place to start is with the intellectual and political climate that Marx was both doing his work and influenced him. So what was going on in the world at the time that he was writing his his major texts and what impact did that have on the the scope of his project?
1: Right. So that that's actually like a very good question that doesn't really get addressed too much. Um, I, I took a philosophy class, a Western a sort of like a history philosophy in in a Western context, and when we hit Marx, it was one of the things that one of our professors really said is like you guys need to understand because of all the baggage in the Western world with Marx, right? there's a lot of misconceptions. There is uh, a sort of ideological tinge away from Marxism for a number of reasons. The professor really hammered in, like, we need to understand where Marx is coming from in a philosophical sense, and also a socioeconomic sense. So Marx started out, really, I would say, in sort of the height of European industrial capitalism, or like a new height, a new sort of threshold and how capitalism evolved. Right. So since then, um, we've had the French revolution, um, we've seen the sort of governmental system of, and not even governmental, social and and religious system of like feudalism that's sort of disintegrated. Right. And, and Marx talks a, a lot about how, um, that came about a lot of his early writings. He's very interested in that, but uh, at at this point, we're seeing liberal, and and so this is very explicit liberal revolutions, uh, all across Europe, in which Marx, uh, supported. Um, Marx is also, um, I suppose if we're we're talking about where he's coming from, and kind of how he gets to this point, uh, he's a German idealist essentially, and a, a Hegelian more specifically. And I'm gonna be careful not to use too many, um sort of deep philosophical lingo like german idealism and hegelian uh, hegelianism but he's a hegelian he's a dialectical thinker um so i guess to to kind of put that together um marx is interested in understanding how tension uh moves the bar of progress and he's looking at as a writer he was a writer at this point There was a ton of liberal revolutions going on in Germany. Uh, France was seeing more of them. Uh, And at this point, this was really informing his social theory and how society progresses, how um, humanity as a whole progresses. And again, he's a a modernist uh, in a sense. So he is interested and sort of tied to the belief that there is a sort of historical progress forward. He's seeing what he called alienation, uh, which he wrote about a lot in his early works, uh, his manuscripts, the German ideology. Uh, he's seeing a new form of alienation emerge uh, among industrial capitalism and and workers dealing with a sort of a sort of being that is very radically different from any time in human organized history. So. I hope that I hope that kind of answers that. There's a lot of tension going on in Europe at the time, and that really deeply informs his political project.
0: Well, this might be a good time to ask about two terms that get used a lot, but the the meaning of them might be either somewhat opaque or used differently in Marxism than elsewhere. So the first is is that alienation, like what alienation means in a Marxist context. And then the other one is capitalism. Like what does Marx mean by capitalism? Because for a lot of, say, like libertarians, I think capitalism just gets used as a synonym for free markets. Like capitalism is a free market economy. A free market economy is capitalism. But that's not quite the same thing as the way that Marxists use the term.
1: Correct. Yeah. So alienation, that is very, very broad. So something something that we should probably do that I don't see anyone do uh, regarding alienation is probably move back to Hegel's alienation for a second. Everyone talks because everyone knows like everyone associates alienation with with Marx. Uh, and, and but many other thinkers like Rousseau have talked about alienation and they mean pretty radically different things. But Marx is closely tied to, to Hegel's alienation. Hegel essentially Hegel with uh, with with alienation sees that you are an individual. You are a person thrusted into a world with radically exterior things going on. You have institutions, um, you have economics, uh religion society at large and in a sense you are so radically different from that that you feel alien to it um and and it's it's hard to mold yourself into these institutions and that brings about what hegel would call an unhappy consciousness uh and so it's like a maybe like a, a weird quasi uh social depression right Something that feels alien, foreign, and uh, but with Hegel himself, uh, I guess we can finish with that uh, he finds that it's actually good that you have these different institutions, uh, this a difference, where uh, there is uh, where you can ultimately recognize yourself from the difference around you. You need this difference. You need these institutions to uh, essentially kind of recognize your, uh, your being, um, your agency, stuff like that. So that moves into Marx, Marx. So Hegel roughly found the source of alienation around uh, almost a metaphysical point of just human being, right? Human relations, nature, Uh, Marx takes a little bit more of an economic approach, um, a general, I want to say synthetic social approach. He finds right now what he's seeing the root of alienation being found in capitalism. And it's. And there's a lot of reasons for that, right? So. It's it can be as simple as just the extremely barbaric working conditions um, that people faced in Germany at this at this time and in Europe. Like, again, truly, I I had a professor is like, we need to understand that Marx was writing and talking about capitalism where people literally work six days a week, like 13, 14 hour days, and people died at like age 50 because of working conditions it, it like if we were to just go back in time and live as a person at that point it would be it would be literal hell like it, 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 it and so marx was so accustomed to a world like that where he he just saw the complete deterioration of like maybe uh religious um uh, religious structures everything became uh, abstracted um you're I I suppose your being became abstracted, right? He talks about the division of labor where labor or work is divided into these weird subgroups. So like there's, there's line workers at a factory. Like you do one little particular task, uh, down, uh, a conveyor belt. And that is your job there. And in doing so, there is no agency with your work. You're not creating anything. And, um, there was no ownership you you were like this alien subject in in this world of abstract happenings going on around you and to Marx he found that that was uh a large woe and and um in capitalism that caused a certain type of human human uh
0: pathology or human woes just to clarify so what this might mean like in uh you know kind of modern or you know we're working, we have our job, and then we come home kind of context, um, it's that if you were a farmer, then you went through the whole process of, you know, say a farmer produces a product, as does, you know, like a worker, Um, that the farmer's product might be, say, potatoes. and But you are, you as the farmer are like the full life of that product, including in some cases the the consumer of it. Um, in that you're, you know, you you take the initial, you know, you you plant the potatoes and you cultivate them and you water them and you see them grow and then you pull this thing that you created out of the ground and then you either sell it or you consume it. So you have the full life cycle. Whereas if you are, say, a factory worker in like a highly specialized, you know, like this, like at a post industrial revolution post comparative advantage sort of world um you might your job is doing this one very small part of a product that you might never actually even see the finished result of depending on where you are like especially with you know enormous supply chains and so on um you might never see the final result you might never buy or use the final result um and so you're the the labor that you're putting in is at a greater distance from the product that's coming out. And so the idea is then that has kind of psychological effects on us because we feel disconnected from like the thing that we're doing.
1: Exactly. That's, that's, that's uh, a lot of Marx's point uh, regarding alienation um, quite well. And and he, and he roots this alienation. And I, I like to look at alienation as a larger philosophical sort of like, subject or concept a lot of people don't people don't look at alienation past marx because marx i think marx popularized that that idea more than more than um more than other philosophers but yeah when you when you look at it and compare it to hegel's alienation alienation to marx is, is rooted exactly in this sort of capitalist mode of production that's where he thinks alienation takes hold
0: and so then what's meant specifically by capitalism
1: right so okay so capitalism if I was to describe capitalism and a Marxist context, not only in a Marxist context, a context close to Marx, right? Capitalism, I, I think um, this is a mistake from a lot of people. We often don't look at capitalism as some like living thing, right? That evolves and changes and and does all these weird things all the time. Um, we look at capitalism as like some uh, stagnant category of just stuff that you know whatever those whatever the definition may be like a free market or stuff like that Um, but the, the conditions within capitalism changes a lot so I, I suppose capitalism in a historical sense at least what Marx viewed it was bourgeois capitalism and at least at that point in time he saw that capitalism really wasn't a free market like people do not actually have tangible access And even if they do have access, the sort of barrier to entry into the economic system is so high uh, and so disjointed that we can't really describe it as free. So I I guess what Marx is describing is what might be presciently described as bourgeois capitalism, an almost neo-feudalistic system without the same sort of religious or um, institutional uh, ties.
0: Yeah, I think those worries often come up in pro-market's arguments. There are often versions of some of that in that there, you know, libertarians talk a lot about barriers to entry, including, say, like, you know, licensing is is a barrier to entry because it's someone wants to become a hair braider. In a lot of states, they have to basically spend a whole lot of money to take classes that aren't really necessary or get like in new york state i think if you want to start a moving company you have to get the approval of a council to get a license and that council is made up of the other moving companies who you know have an incentive to say like no we don't want more competition so we're going to we're going to create these barriers to entry um but there's also obviously like financial barriers to entry because it can be if you don't have a credit history, it can be hard to get the loans necessary to get that initial, you know, startup capital, um, or that, you know, one of the most powerful tools that workers have for improving their, you know, like working conditions is the ability to change employers. You know, to say like, this isn't working out for me. I'm going to take my my labor elsewhere. But if there's barriers to that, like, you know, the, the state created tie between health insurance and your employer. In the United States, so that if you change jobs, you lose your health insurance, makes it much harder to move than it otherwise would be, um, or or like regulatory capture, where you know like there's a reason that Facebook is pushing for Section 230 reforms um, and for like content moderation rules being passed at the federal level, and it's because Facebook can afford a lot of lawyers to handle those, but their startup, but their like competitors can't, um, and. And so it sounds like a lot i mean a lot of these concerns are shared is that in in this system that you know Marxists would call capitalism um it's not this like it's not this perfect free market with you know zero barriers or mineral barriers to both entry and to exit it is It is a system that is continually being kind of rigged by those who already have power within it to work to their advantage.
1: Correct, and that's roughly when you get to uh, Marx's more economic theory. Um, that is the big point in which he talks about sort of the the subfield that economics seems to have. I want to say abandoned. That's political economy, right? Whether that you know be the works of Adam Smith, which Marx was also very very influenced by. Um, to a lot of people who are libertarians or people who are familiar with a lot of like Marx's discourse online, Marx is not someone who is so radically separate and uh, antithetical to liberalism or a lot of liberal um, political theory. Marx is very interested in the work of Adam Smith. Adam Smith kind of drew sort of capitalism to the uh, the relation between like state and commerce. Uh, and religious institution in commerce. And so this is the important thing is that these things are all, and according to Marx, these things are all relational. We can't think of things like capitalism as something abstract, as like a free market where everyone has an equal share and where people can, if they don't like their job, they just go find another job. And we have this abstract system that it exists in a sort of atmospheric realm, uh, an idea, an ideal and we claim that that is an actual material reality. Marx sort of that's what what Marx saw at least in a sort of the uh I, I suppose more idealistic liberal notions of 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 capitalism and he thought was incorrect as as well as Adam Smith as well. And I think you're right. Like that's the best way to describe the sort of bourgeois capitalism that Marx saw where there is and, and I think this is accurate today. Like, if we're, if we're going to be honest, like in, in today's context, I think this is still correct. Where, um, it, it, like, a, there's a, a radical misunderstanding, a, a massive misunderstanding, where you'll you'll see right wingers, and maybe even other Marxists might misinterpret this. Where, like, like being a libertarian or being a capitalist is someone who doesn't like the state, and Marxists like the state. Left wingers like the state, and that's where the dividing line is. And that's extremely incorrect. Uh, Marx was very critical of state functions in relation to capitalism as well. So essentially capitalism, uh, the private sector, the public sector, they are not separate. They are completely linked together. Again, Marx is a dialectical thinker where there is a continual tension, but those tensions stay within continuity and they're connected with one with one another. Capitalism is sort of that, that interwoven system of uh, political, economic, uh, religious, and social institutional relations.
0: How does this then play into his class theory? Because we hear a lot about like Marxist class theory and the working class versus the bourgeoisie and so on.
1: So Marx clearly has two main classes, which he sees within society. That being uh, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, bourgeoisie roughly just meaning, and this is kind of it. Like it's pretty simple. Uh, people might, people often moralize the the definition of bourgeoisie of people who are just rich. It has nothing to do really with wealth, at least in a Marxist context. It's it's who fundamentally controls uh, production, who controls the sort of inner workings of society. So it's in many ways. How you differentiate between class in a Marxist context isn't necessarily wealth, it's it's control and, and, and who has this sort of agency or power within a society. And while ironically, the the problem with the proletariat, the working class people, is that they don't have the tangible power, yet ironically they do. Again, Marx is a dialectical thinker, there's contradictions. Here, uh, really, to Marx, it is the workers, the proletariat, who have the actual power, but in a sort of social context and a more synthetic context, they don't, like, according to, like, the, the rule book, I suppose. Um, so, yeah, you have this this binary of, of classes who are in constant tension. And those classes, roughly speaking, they may have been called different things uh, in the time of feudalism, Marx talks about how you know, the serfs and and lords, they can be called and, and, and qualified as something different. But within capitalism, he saw at this time period, uh, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. And really Marx's political theory is that, um, with this tension, there was, was class conflict, uh, and within class conflict, uh, resulted in this sort of rupture of a progress in the, in the name of a sort of emancipatory thing, right? So to Marx, uh, like Hegel, other modern thinkers, history is something progressive. We, we see the pushing forward of, of history. And I think it's important to point out here, Marx was not like, this is very important, because you have a, a libertarian audience. Marx was not someone who was moralistically opposed to capitalism, if that makes sense. He doesn't even necessarily Marx doesn't really talk a lot about morality in the context of economics. He, he like he doesn't even really say capitalism is quote-unquote unjust. He does, he's he's very disinterested with with how we would describe moralism. Really like he he at the same time this is essentially Marx's view Marx's view on capitalism. It is the best economic system we have seen to date. It is the most powerful, most robust. It has lifted and um, presented newer forms of technology. But the inherent dialectical contradiction within capitalism is that it also creates new problems that must be solved, like alienation, stuff of that nature that um, Marx is critical of. And so I, I think that it's just important when we're describing Marx uh, and, and how we view class conflict, how he views capitalism. There is always a dialectical tone to it all, a sort of two opposing binary things that are in conflict with one another that rupture and create a more progressive sort of inlook. And I know that might be very vague and might not make sense. It took me a while to really understand dialectics uh, in a Marxist context and even a Hegelian context. So I I hope that answers it. I'm trying not to be too uh, jargony, um, but those are just the best ways I can describe it.
0: What's then the relationship to, to socialism? Because Marx was hanging with socialists and part of those conversations and socialism and communism play a large role in his work. So if he's I mean that you, you said it's not it's not a, like the difference is not kind of love of markets versus love of the state, but the politics that flow out of this tends to be socialistic or communist, which is you know fairly state centric and you know state involved in the economy.
1: Right. So uh, another misunderstanding. Often that that socialism is just like this sort of stagnant system next to uh, capitalism that's just different, right? It's just another alternative that we have to capitalism. It's not not really the case to to Marx and a lot of German idealists. Everything is in flow and in flux, and with that, socialism is essentially just a process towards what Marx and Engels called communism. Now. This is another thing too. Like like this is another thing too. Marx and Engels were not very clear on what communism would exactly look like. We know that it's a state or it's a, a stateless, classless, moneyless society. But what that actually tangibly looked like, they didn't really know. And they were honest about that. And that's where socialism comes into play. It is the almost vehicle into into communism that with this abundance of alienation economic hardship uh brutal conditions for a lot of people there's there's a descriptive element to how marx and Engels approach this and a prescriptive so descriptive they're just looking at this from an almost social scientific lens where they're like okay what's going to happen with this, uh, this abundance of alienation the the inner workings of capitalism they thought uh they thought almost quasi scientifically, this is where some people describe scientific socialism. Uh, But I think the scientific thing often gets misconstrued, misunderstood. So they, they think they look at this uh, and they think that what's going to happen is workers are going to organize. They are going to collectively come together and they're probably going to overthrow the state. Uh, They're going to overthrow capitalist systems all over the globe, and they're going to establish a more emancipatory, equal society. That's a vehicle into communism, away from a stateless classless society. So within socialism, uh, we can talk about some characteristics. Like yes, it is, um, and this gets developed later, far later on in Marx's life, because again, socialism is also a sort of unknown, right? Uh, and and how if if socialism is a vehicle, how is it a vehicle? And Marx and Engels don't just make stuff up. They they look at historical events to sort of see how that may happen. Um, so, for example, the Paris Commune happened and uh, workers overthrew essentially the, the municipal government uh, of Paris and they established a commune. What they saw, what Marx and Engels saw, is that, well, it the commune got crushed. Like economic forces converged, uh, the state uh, other states within Europe were like, oh, my God, like, you know, Paris is this massive economic hub and we can't trade here. We need to put this, you know, we need to put this to an end. Uh, and they essentially crushed them. They killed thousands of of people. So Marx and Engels also looked at that. So if socialism is going to be a vehicle towards communism, it is probably going to be a state orientated system. Roughly speaking, roughly speaking, uh, there's a lot of caveats to that. Um, And they they describe sort of how this comes about. And like, I'm sure some people are familiar with the dictatorship of the proletariat. Um, And so what workers will do is establish a sort of dictatorship um, and they will usher in a sort of new state society into that. But this is very important that gets misconstrued all the time and linguists have talked about how this is massively like massively like misunderstood uh and and i think there's a lot of even among marxists there is a ton of purposefully misunderstanding uh in order to sort of support a narrative within marxism that i think is incorrect um Essentially, what Marx and Engels talked about with dictatorship of the proletariat, I I use dictatorship of the proletariat because that's the popular understanding of of what they're talking about here. But what they meant by dictatorship wasn't necessarily a modern dictatorship of how we view dictatorships today. There's a language barrier here with German. What they really meant is just a power, a power system where uh, workers had the majority of power. And um, they're vague on that. They're like, we don't exactly know how this is going to happen Whether it's going to be in the classical sense of like a state, like a dictatorship of how we saw maybe in the USSR or in China. And that was the very material understanding they took, that it was an actual modern dictatorship as we understand it. There's a lot of debate, and I think it's right to say that Marx and Engels didn't actually think there should be an actual tangible dictatorship. They were often fairly democratic in their approach and to how socialism would work where they talked about voting rights for all people. And that's a very radical thing at the the time when they were writing that. Uh, So I I would say socialism in a Marxist context, in the classical Marxist context, socialism is something that is radically democratic, Um, likely organized through central trade unions. I think that's correct. Uh, I think that's fair to say within socialism and that organization within trade unions makes up a lot of state functions so I, I find a lot of continuity with how Marx and Engels talk about socialism with sort of anarcho-syndicalist tonalities. And this is why I think that you see a lot of, like, there's there's sort of like a subset split within Marxism, Marxist-Leninist uh, or Maoist, and then the sort of traditional anarchist. I find within, ma- like, classical Marxism, anarch- anarchism seems to be more in line with what Marx and Engels thought. Whether that's correct or we should do that that's a whole other discussion that I'm not even necessarily sure on. Um, I'm not, I gotta be honest. I'm not too interested in that. I think that that can get a little bit, you know, in in 2022, I think there's other things that we should look at other than classical like debates around <laughs> whether we should do anarchism or Marxism Leninism. But I, I find that socialism can be seen as like a, a very r- radically democratic system with workers at the focus, with workers who make most of the decisions, and, and and people, not just like workers. Like this isn't. A lot of people misunderstand too there's tension here marx Marx is an understander uh, like he he understands a world that is in tension, but it's not like a moralistic tension where he hates the bourgeoisie or he hates like alienation in these these, these systems uh they affect business owners arguably more in some sense psychologically than workers so it's it's, it's a twofold system where there are things going on and, and, and in an emancipatory society, he wants to view a sort of equal playing ground for Um, for all people. So everyone gets a vote on, on bills, Um, trade unions, mitigate sort of labor issues. And from there, there is a progress that will bring about communism. I I hope that answers that question. I hope I I, I'm kind of jumping around different things for context, because I know there's a lot of misunderstandings between the lines with what we're talking about.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. But let me, I guess, let me probe it a little bit Um, because and and I mean, and please correct me if I'm like misconstruing some of this, um, but there's this idea of like class consciousness and class solidarity and that we need, we be like that from a Marxist perspective, what we need is greater kind of worker class consciousness and class solidarity, which will then lead to this, you know, overthrow of existing systems in favor of the things that you just described. Um, and I'm wondering about the notion of like how self-interest plays out in that because so there's this there's this branch of economics called public choice economics uh which the the key insight of that was a lot of economists tended to think like people in markets market participants are are self interested they are you know they're they're driven by a profit motive they will do what they can to increase profits they'll try to avoid decreased profits they will you know their their self interest trumps, but then When they talked about like – and that's what led to the need for government intervention because what you need is government to come in and essentially be a corrective against the self-interest of market participants. Um, And what the public choice school said was, wait a second. Why do we think that when people enter government, they give up self-interest, like that they become kind of perfectly other-interested In in their perspective on things and that their their interest becomes the public good um, as opposed to, you know, their personal profit that exists in markets. And then if we assume that that's not the case, if we say government actors have the same incentives as market participants, then what happens? And it turns out that it explains a lot of oddities that we see um, bootlegger and Baptist kind of problems, log rolling issues Regulatory capture and so on is that, you know, people, they they're not people in the state aren't pursuing profit, but they're now pursuing, say, power, like bureaucrats tend to try to aggregate even more control. Um, And I wonder about that in this context, because it seems like a lot of this depends upon the idea that the workers are going to be. Class regarding in their actions um, versus self-interested. And you mentioned, like you mentioned, him being, Marx being influenced by Adam Smith. Like Adam Smith talks a lot about the, the negative effects of guilds, which are essentially like trade organizations and how guilds will try to stack the deck in the favor of their members against other working classes. Unions have a long history of, you know, there was a lot of, trying to exclude minorities from employment or, you know, the, the minimum wage originally began as a way to kind of price women out of the marketplace um, because they were coming in. They, as they came into the marketplace into the job market, they were competing with like male dominated labor unions. Like why wouldn't workers councils and You know, the working class function exactly the same way that we see kind of everyone else in that they'd say, like, yes, my my labor union, I want to do what's good for that. But that doesn't mean what's good for, like, the general class.
1: Okay. so if I'm understanding this correctly, like humans are very pluralistic and their their wants and needs and sort of spiritual ethos. Right. Like people are Christians. People are, you know, Muslims. They have different like, you know different ethnicities and backgrounds and all that. Is that roughly what I'm saying? And like, why is it that Marx finds that within the sort of economic system, they're going to take class as their understanding of their being? Is that correct? So
0: why, why class? Because we like these other categories have long histories, right? So like, and then why would, you know, so he wants to, he wants to get rid of prices and he wants to kind of turn everything over to these councils, um why would we expect that workers in those councils wouldn't just use the power that they have to stack the deck in their own like individual or small group interests at the expense of other workers in the same way that we see you know modern businesses try to stack the deck against potential competitors and so on
1: okay so maybe i can start by saying i think this is kind of where where we're getting into a point where, like, I, I find that I'm probably not so Marxist in my approach. I find human beings maybe, a, a probably a lot more complicated to where like um, self interest goes, and I and where like we can find our like being, like what we are, or, like our identity and stuff. Mar- I suppose I can kind of Marx and Engels at, at that point thought that descriptively that the one thing and and i think i still agree with this i think this is where i I actually agree the one common thing that can kind of like describe like who we are what we are and our relation to the world is like sort of our class structure like in some ways that that is like the the apex of what we are because it's so indicative of everything else right how we you know how much purchasing power we have like how the amount of time we can even explore like other forms of identity education stuff like that, like how like your class relation um you know the job makeup the 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 relation in which you are in with production um that is sort of the the main the main articulator of your being, and I
0: think even in today's world, I think that's right, so people are kind of interest pluralists as you said um and and there, I think what you were describing too was more of identity pluralism like we have we we place ourselves in different categories i am I am a member of a family, I'm a member of a local community, I'm a member of a certain religious sect. I'm a member of a certain sports fandom, and I have those those overlap in different ways, but I have like pieces of my identity are defined by you know all of these and and so, I'm not just one thing and And then we also have interest pluralism in that people are, they tend to care about their own well being and they also care about the well being of others. But kind of the more distant those others are, whether just geographically or culturally, the less we tend to care about them. We also are very good at rationalizing why actions that are kind of nakedly in our own self-interest at the expense of others are, are like, okay, you know, we'll, we'll behave in that way. Um, and so as we have seen, like, you know, the, the past history of labor unions where the labor unions would like push very hard to keep out certain groups, like other working class people, whether it was minorities or women or, you know like prison guard unions are a good i think prison guard unions are like next to cop unions as like the worst thing there is um and but prison guard unions are a very example of like they are among the strongest lobbyists against reforming drug laws because putting largely working class people in cages is how they earn their paycheck
1: so, I think yeah, what you're describing there is is a contradiction that even Marx and Engels talked about uh, quite a bit there is uh, and that's how like again they're dialectical thinkers, so they're they're viewing contradictions, capitalism in their mind works through contradictions, a lot of human behavior and wants work through contradictions uh so yeah that's that's another contradiction, right you have. People who are self interested, and that's rational to Marx and Engels. They talk about this a lot. Like, that's why they're against a moralistic approach to looking at society um, and, and even within workers. So, now we're getting specifically to your, your question. How do we deal with the sort of self interested motive in a, in, a, in a society that is actually dependent on the well being of, of a whole? I think we can go back a little bit. We need to we need to understand uh with Marx and Engels their approaches with Hegel. Everything's going back to Hegel with Marx and Engels. So the really rough summation of Master Slave dialectic is every interaction, every discussion comes to a dialectical conflict, and that's metaphysically, that's socially, but Right now, the discussion me and you are having, right now, I take the form of sort of master, because I'm trying to explain, like, w- you know, what the hell is going on here. You're technically the slave. You're, you're listening to what I'm, what I'm saying. And naturally, through this conversation, what we found, you are finding ways to sort of push at that. Like, you're, you're probing me, uh, what, what I'm trying to say. What happens here is, since I am the master... I am sort of imparting a sort of knowledge on you and you are imparting also a sort of knowledge on me, but more importantly, you're probing what I'm saying. In essence, we are coming together as like we were recognizing ourselves. So in being a slave, you're recognizing your role or yourself in this situation. Me as a master in this situation, I'm recognizing myself. uh, And that's how we get to sort of being and why that's important to Hegel um, is that, Hegel finds and, and within Marxism that there here we come to a point where like my being is is like it, it's dependent on someone else. I can't recognize myself. I can't be a person without that other person involved. Hegel and Marx and Engels viewed individuality as something radically mediated. each other we can only recognize ourselves in relation to other people and communities so this is another misunderstanding that we're coming that's often misunderstood that marxism is a system or a philosophy of the collective that's not true marx and Engels understand the individual like the individual is not like just part of the collective no it's like that we can only understand the individual in relation to the collective. So here, I think that's important to understand because if we're talking about how do we deal with the sort of want uh, and and the the sort of, you know, uh, like you were saying, labor unions casting out sort of other people doing things harmful to their other, you know, class brethren or whatever. Um that is the contradiction there where, like, it's rational to do something that is self-interested in you, but it's also harmful. And I think this is where Marx and Engels talk about that, like, there's a prescriptive element to uh, class solidarity that's good. That that typically what is also good for people in your class is typically going to be good for you. Um, and that those things, that that should become a more common understanding. Because you need these people to recognize yourself. You need these people to be an individual. You ironically need the bourgeoisie to recognize yourself or you need other institutions to recognize yourself. So I think in, I think in understanding like self-interest, it's that yes, Marx and Engels recognize that like, yeah, people are self-interested and they will do things that will fuck over other people in their own class. Um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, that's the contradiction that we have to deal with, that, that that's actually, that can be problematic and harmful to you in the end.
0: I guess given this, and given the kind of view of how, that you have presented of how Marxism treats the individual and trying to in, liberate the individual from these, these existing like structures of power, what what do we make of places like you know, the Stalinist Soviet Union or or communist China, which say that they're Marxist, but are, you know, and and say they're influenced heavily by Marx and that they're carrying forward that project. But it's or North Korea, um, but then in practice, uh, you know, are seem very antithetical to a lot of what you have just described.
1: Yeah. And that's, that's, that's something that I wish got discussed more in good faith among other Marxists, I suppose. Um, I mean, there is, I don't know how familiar you are with like online Marxists. They're often some of the worst people to to deal with. Uh, A lot of people think that like, I've had tankies
0: come after me. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's yeah. It's typically, you know, I don't really typically like to, to, but no, 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 it's uh, totally okay. Like I, Like, um, they're so commonly understood as tankies, that sector of sort of Marxist-Leninist, that uh, that's just the best way to describe them in today's world. But I I typically don't think that there are very well-informed Marxist-Leninists who really think that that sort of subfield within Marxism is correct. And, you know, that's okay. But Lenin himself was someone, I I think – In many regards, we could look at how Lenin would view the sort of mid to late USSR, maybe under Stalinism, and he would probably not be very (laughs) happy. Um, Same with with China as well. Lenin's often a misunderstood character a bit. um, But yeah, that is is the thing. Um, The USSR and China were absolutely very antithetical to a lot of the sort of classical notions of, of socialism and communism. Uh, and I don't really know how to uh, approach that right now. Right now, when you when you deal with other Marxists, it's like there's some people who say like, oh, the bad things about the USSR is just, you know, it's just like the, you know, it's just the bourgeoisie and propaganda. And and there is some of that, like there are some misconceptions around what's happened in the USSR. And absolutely, there is an, a definite overflow of certain propagandized ways of how they live their life there and stuff like that and and there there's reasons for that you know like the, the corporations do ultimately want trade in those those regions and stuff and 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 those states and governments d- weren't willing to do that they were ideologically tied to a a sort of more robustly i suppose non-market system although they were market systems this is where contradictions come in um it's complicated right so i i would like to say that If we can look at the USSR, we can look at China, we can look at Cuba, there are some states where I think probably arguably we're a little bit more in line with with what Marx had to say and and, and how they viewed socialism. And and this is important. How did they define socialism? So again, socialism is something radically democratic, right? Um, And we can't avoid that. And that's something roughly all those states I I stated weren't very good at. There's some reasons for that um we, we have a, a global world where and i think this is very true where again state and 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 economic functions are not separate they fundamentally work within each other so what happens here is you have these very powerful countries like the united states like europe where Essentially, the government functions as a wing of economic interest. And so what we even saw in like like during the 80s under Reagan, well, Reagan ultimately sent the CIA to if there was any socialist revolutions or any states that wanted to create uh, to, to go away from the traditional ethos of market capitalism that we were seeing during that time. Really, we just funded right wing death squads and they murdered Uh, like thousands, if not throughout the entirety of the history of South America and other countries, millions of, uh, working class people who wanted to change and how their their state and government and, and economic systems functioned. Because typically how it worked was, you know, corporations would set up shop uh, in these countries and they would exploit very, very cheap labor. Um, eventually that they were not cool with that. There would be a
0: revolution. If you're unfamiliar with the history of the way that American corporations operated, particularly in, in Latin America, it's worth looking into because it's not it's tempting to think of it as, oh, these these big companies went in and set up businesses and employed people there and it was the market at work and even from like a hardcore you know market liberal perspective that's not really what was going on and like you know read up like on united fruit and the ways that they would work with like corrupt local politicians in order to do really exploitative stuff like this was not a free market in action and it was being it was being supported by the US government for because a lot of these people were heavily politically connected. So this was it's it's a I think it's a much more complicated and distressing history than I think a lot of the more right wing just, you know, communism versus capitalism sorts of perspectives make it out to be.
1: Yeah, it isn't a moralistic like capitalism versus communism, absolutely not. It's a sort of like like it's disturbing if you look at history, it's shocking, really. I I never thought that anything like that existed. Living in the United States, you're certainly not taught about it. But yeah, I mean, essentially the way international capital flows and and how imperialism works, it's very disturbing and it's um and it's very exploitative and 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 a lot of workers faced Hardships that are are much worse than even like the worst working conditions in the U.S. Uh, and again, there's an economic basis for that. It's just simply it's it's more rational and cheaper to find that sort of that cheap labor there. And there's resources in these other countries that that uh, corporations are are eager to get their hands on. And and, and of course, the state uh, and the United States and Europe will facilitate that uh, as much as they can. And so what we see is we see these socialistic states seeing massive i say socialist states again like we were talking about earlier they're not necessarily definitionally socialist so that's one thing but we saw these states they're 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 scared like there's there's a target there is a, a continual target on their back from capitalist states in europe and in the us uh where that that's why the cold war happened. It's like, look, we have an ideologically juxtaposed state like the USSR, who is not in an interest of trading with the United States. If their corporations are going to come in and treat their workers like shit. So if that's the case, well, how do we typically, how do often capitalist states deal with that? They use force. So that's where we saw the, I think the massively anti-democratic thing, because within democracy, this is the this is a conflict and this is it sucks really bad um i think if you were someone sympathetic to moving you know progressing systems i like i i say this to people it's like it's not about like you know like moving past capitalism isn't necessarily like anti-capitalism or it's not like being a pro-socialist it's almost like an uh, it's a deeper understanding of that look there are problems there are very there are, capitalism's the greatest system we've ever seen I think ever in in human history it doesn't mean it's perfect it's the greatest system that we have right now undeniably I think nonetheless nonetheless Uh, It doesn't mean that we shouldn't as a human species move forward and and into newer systems and that we should do those things. But the way capitalism functions in my mind and under a Marxist analysis is it doesn't want to change. The entire goal of it is to facilitate the same economic structure uh, and and cycle. And so revolutions were a big no-no. Um, If it threatened economic interest. And so what you saw is that states buckle down on things like freedom of speech. They essentially curtailed a lot of like what I think fairly decent, good liberal rights. I, I think freedom of speech is is good um in the abstract i think there's problems with freedom of speech right like we we see i think sometimes we you know this is an, another conversation that we can certainly have i think sometimes there's some uh I, I think we may underestimate the impact of certain speech um so for example like like germany bans nazi uh insignia in in gatherings and stuff and i actually i actually think that that's probably not the like you know again totally different discussion we can talk about that but i actually think that that's probably a decent approach to how we view freedom of speech that like it's not a simple freedom of speech is connected to sort of material organizing and stuff like that it's not just an abstract notion nonetheless they shut down these 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 institutions like freedom of speech, and they're pretty anti-democratic countries. So it's like, are were they correct in doing that? I don't know. So there there are some there are some situations in history that we can look at. So are are you familiar with Allende? A little bit, but so yeah, in Chile, uh Salvador Allende was what we would probably call a democratic socialist. Um he was elected democratically. He didn't there wasn't some there wasn't a uh typical prototypical revolution of an overthrow of the state uh a, and again a violent overthrow of the state um he was elected um and he was a democratic socialist he had free there was freedom of speech uh, if anything people were probably more technically you know technically maybe in under a negative context versus positive context of freedom there was probably there was more freedom of speech um, you, I, I think, uh, I think LGBTQ rights were I, I don't think there was like any actual core discrimination on a state level that, that used to be there, um, workers' wages went up immensely. Now, Salvador Allende had a lot of, uh, he also wasn't very popular with the right. They didn't like that workers had more power, that they had better wages uh, and so what happened was the CIA uh, um, constantly, we, we, I mean, they were just funding, they were funding newspapers. They were funding, Uh, they were funding media outlets to essentially just kind of like just bastardize Allende as some monster, some like communist that, and he technically probably was like a communist, but he wanted to create a much more egalitarian, democratically ran government. And what we saw ultimately end of story is that he was overthrown by militias and that he was murdered uh, and uh, like thousands of leftists were, were killed. Um, and the CIA f- funneled like I think in today's money like a billion dollars like let that sink in but, like a billion dollars of today's money into overthrowing a democratically elected uh, person. And then you saw something like Pinochet pop up. And, and this is important. There was a discussion between um, Allende and Fidel Castro, which Fidel Castro was very sympathetic to not only what Pinochet uh, wanted ideologically, but Castro was very sympathetic to his to Pino to Allende's uncompromised view on freedom of speech. He he famously kind of said to Allende, like, like, look, like that it is wonderful, it's beautiful what you are doing um how people have the ability to speak out against you um but you need to be prepared you're going to get overthrown and and uh Castro predicted that he would have been overthrown in a couple of years and Castro actually underestimated that uh, I think Pinochet was overthrown within a, a year later essentially so Castro you saw Castro was like dude you're going to be taken over the the media has so much more money flowing through it um there were Right-wing militias popping up all over. He's like, dude, you're you're gonna get overthrown. So that's the contradiction, right? That we're seeing within states like the USSR and China. There's ultimately a fear that you have to almost be, maybe not have to, but the, the rational response to dealing with the uh, the the sort of warlike uh, relation between the West and Eastern countries or countries that wanted a more egalitarian workers based system is that you're just going to be overthrown. Uh, they used force. And if you don't meet it with force, um, you're kind of fucked. That's the understanding. And that's the contradiction. That's even today. What I think is like, God, how do we move past the system and try to create a more equal or more free Uh, system it's like there's contradictions within that because like you 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 look at this i I don't know maybe does that make sense to you aaron like like that seems to be a massive problem right like where do we approach if you're if you're uh if you're sympathetic to things like socialism or a worker-owned you know worker-focused system that's the question it's like do we curtail like liberal rights that are very valuable um rights that you and me and all kinds of other people enjoy But, you know, I don't know that that seems to be the conflict within the 20th century and quote unquote Marxism is it's like, how do we approach that?
0: Yeah. And I think that's I mean, that's a big worry looking from, you know, like a a liberal perspective at a lot of these countries is the the attempts to stave off that kind of, you know, the possibility of of regime collapse for whatever reason often leads to. Incredibly authoritarian actions that, you know, like jailing of political dissidents, that free speech is not terribly great in Cuba, um, you know, closing down of opposition newspapers, shutting down of opposition television shows and so on that that then has the effect of concentrating power among a particular class, which is the politically connected class yeah, the, um, the, and the party and then turning into. Yeah, the party and um, we have. In in the very short time we have left, I'm just I'm curious because you back at the beginning of the conversation we talked about like the the world that Marx was living in and the state of the economy and the state of just the society at the time and that it was this very like the the high point of kind of this industrial capitalism, um, and and we have not everywhere it still it still exists but in a lot of places like in the U.S. we we moved to a what looks much more like a post-industrial capitalism. We have moved to say even like gig economy stuff where there isn't necessarily the direct like boss employee relationships, but it's more like independent contractors organizing on like an ad hoc basis and so on. Um, How does Marxism adapt to this, like this very different world from the one that Marx was writing about of workers in these smoke-filled factories that
1: that is a, a wonderful question that is where a lot of 20th century philosophy really kind of emerged so this is also what what we would call neo-marxist right uh kind of popped up within the Frankfurt school of critical theory and this is kind of where critical theory comes in the Frankfurt school really merged Freud into their socioeconomic analysis with Marx. They were, they were Marxists, they were they were humanists, philosophical humanists, but they really valued what Freud had to say. And so you find these newer fields that are starting to emerge in the 20th century. And they're finding it that that these fields do a really decent job at explaining like how humans are functioning and how capitalism almost, almost functions in a modern contemporary context. I think in many ways in the 90s, there's a, a, a philosopher called Frederick Jameson. He's still alive. Uh, postmodernism or the cultural logic of late capitalism does an extremely good job at explaining sort of like capitalism in today's context and how we view like individuality and, and like how we how we view the social organization of what we consider postmodernism, uh, the cultural logic. I think that's where I stand right now. Um, where how we view capitalism today, I look at it more in that lens rather than any orthodox sort of classical Marxist notion of capitalism. I, I think it's crazy how correct Marx is even still in, in today's context. I think he's very correct. But definitely, capitalism has evolved to the point where 20th century philosophy is incredibly, uh, incredibly important to understand. That's kind of why I said at the very beginning, I would approach things skeptical to people who are not familiar with 20th century philosophy or just outright reject it from a Marxist perspective. Um, I almost feel like they often do a disservice of Marxism because Marxism is a dialectical thing. The, the, whole, the whole point of Marxism is sort of a, a, a progress and change in how we look at stuff. So ironically, I find the most Marxist approach, Zizek is known for saying this, Slavo Zizek, a philosopher. He said, the best way to be a Marxist is to not be a Marxist. And you're like, what the fuck does that mean? It's that, it's that like, in order to be a proper Marxist is to abandon your prior notions of former Marxism.
0: I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ian Bennett. Now, here's a preview of the next episode of Reimagining Liberty. I'm joined by Andy Craig and John Hudak to talk about why the Liberty Movement seems to attract so many illiberals, and why they've had so much success lately in taking over its various activist wings, particularly the Libertarian Party. This is an important conversation for anyone who cares about the long-term health of libertarianism and wants to see the Liberty Movement be a more welcoming and forward-thinking place. We can't keep sweeping this under the rug. We have to attack the problem head-on. We need to speak out loudly about our ideals, and we have to show exactly how we differ from people like Dave Smith or Stefan Molyneux or Hans-Hermann Hoppe. We have to show that we're not anti-immigration. We're not for unleashing the police to dole out instant punishment, which is a late Rothbard quote that's been brought up by people like Dave Smith. We have to show that we don't pander to alt-righters. And when we see these terrible things, I think it's very valuable to loudly speak out against them. We need to show people that there is a brand of libertarianism that doesn't support this kind of stuff. You can hear my full conversation with Andy and John on May 4th, or you can listen to it right now without any wait by becoming a supporter. It's just $5 a month or $50 a year, and you'll get every episode two weeks early, as well as access to the Reimagining Liberty Discord community. To become a supporter, just look for the link in the show notes. Talk to you soon.